Good morning, all you great souls. Isn't it wonderful that we're able to gather finally together? Yay. Even though we have to wear masks still, that's a minor issue here. Once again, welcome everyone, both here in the Temple of Light at Ananda Village and all of you watching online. And we want to welcome you to Spiritual Renewal Week. Our theme this year is Uplift Yourself, Uplift the World. And you know, I was thinking about it. <clears throat> the very first Spiritual Renewal Week, if you can think back that far, imagine back that far, was in 1969, Swami Kriyananda, led the first one, and at that time he did everything. Every morning class, afternoon he did counseling, every evening program, Sunday services, Korea initiations. But because of him, we are all here. And Anand exists all over the world, and we have many, many people to carry on. So we want to dedicate this week to Master, who gave us these remarkable, life-changing teachings to Swamiji, whose vision uh, created Ananda and gave us a life in God. And then this week, I would also like to dedicate to two dear friends who attended every spiritual renewal week up till this point, Nayaswami Seva and Nayaswami Anandi, who both passed away last, uh, in December and January. And Nayaswami Seva would come to every event. She wasn't a teacher, she didn't have a public role, but she was there, usually sitting about where surrender is, smiling and beaming energy. Beaming energy. And Nayaswami Anandi, for many, many years, organized and put together all the details for Spiritual Renewal Week, came up with the concepts, the classes, and taught as well. So, dear friends, we miss you, but I know you are with us in spirit, and we dedicate this week to you.
stretch out my hand and smile when I live from above. All the world is my friend. When I learn how to share my love, when I stretch out my hand and smile when I live from above. All the world is my friend. When I learn how to share my love, when I stretch out my Those of you who don't know, this is Lisa Clark and her husband Tim is somewhere here, and um, they oh there you are they make everything work here so. <laughs> Including us. <laughs> so as Davy said. The theme for this week is uplift yourself, uplift the world. It's a wonderful theme. When we were first thinking about this, we had the thought of having the title be Change Yourself, Change the World. But it's much better. I'm going to talk a little bit about the difference between change and upliftment. It's a, it's a much different concept to change things than it is to uplift things. Most people, in fact, look at the world around themselves and they see a world that needs changing. I'm sure you do. Um, I certainly do. Uh, you know, I don't particularly like the politics. The weather isn't so hot. The economy is diving. Um, lots of, lots of issues out there that need to be changed. But there's a big difference in motivation between whether you want the world to change so that you don't have to. You got the world just the way you like it pretty much in place, and then it's pleasing to you. That's a very different concept from uplifting the world, because uplifting the world or uplifting yourself implies that everything needs to be changed. And it needs to be changed because we are suffering at this point. We suffer according to our level of consciousness. Uh, Master said very clearly, he said, as long as we think of ourselves as being mortal, that means as long as we think of ourselves as being in a body, being in a personality, then we're functioning in ego. And I'll come back to that theme. But that functioning in ego implies that we're going to be unhappy and that we're going to suffer. Part of the way that God uh, motivates us, in fact, probably the main motivation, is that we suffer. And because we suffer, we want to change. If we didn't, um, we wouldn't want to change. In fact, there's a story that Swami told of a very great saint who had highly elevated consciousness. <clears throat> and uh, an angel appeared to him, or a deva, and said, um, you're so uplifted, sir, that 
we're going to bring you into heaven, bring you into the high astral world without any loss of consciousness, such as we normally have it at death. And the saint said, oh, well, that sounds very nice. What is this world like? And the angel began to describe, oh, it's beautiful. Everything, all the clouds, the scenery, the weather is perfect. The mountains are beautiful. There's silvery rain that comes down. The fruits hang from the trees and you can take them however you want. Not only can you take them, but if you're at an apple tree and you want a mango, you just say, produce a mango for me. And it's just lovely. And the saint said, well, this sounds, sounds very nice, but are there any downsides to it? It's my experience that there's always some downside to everything. The angel said, no, no, there's nothing wrong at all. In fact, it's so perfect you just don't want anything to change. And the saint said, well, the downsides are so colossal in comparison to the upsides that I'm not interested at all. I want to reincarnate as soon as I can because I want to go beyond any sense of form. Because you see, the astral world also still has a, an ego. We have an astral body that has an astral ego or an ego Really, the soul is the only thing that's permanent. The soul is a spark of God that is made in the perfect image of God. And that's our real essence, the soul. But that soul comes into a body, first a causal body, body of thought, then an astral body, body of energy. Energy is more changeable than the physical universe. And then finally into a physical body. But that ego remains all the way through until we're completely out of it. That's what the saint perceived. And most of us don't really perceive that. So the idea of changing, God plants in us because our, because our true self is to be united with him. God plants in us what, let's call it a divine discontent. We're never going to be content as long as we're inhabiting any of the bodies that have an ego in them. And so that sense of discontent is, as we translate it down into the realm of physical universe, it's what causes suffering. So everybody has a sense of discontent. Most of the people want to deal with that by changing circumstances, changing people, changing anything outside of their consciousness. But the sense of discontent cannot go away without the upliftment of consciousness. And so uplift yourself, uplift the world. But that motivation of uplifting in order to help uplift others is very important, very different from changing in order to change others, which implies, um, implies most of what's going on in the world right now, politics and uh, business and 
all things in the world as long as they have the core motivated by ego and trying to make things pleasant for your ego, your, your separate self, then things are going to be in conflict because like it or not, not everybody wants to be changed into just the form that you want them changed into. <laughs> and therein lies all the problems we see around us. Everybody's trying to change each other. There's a wonderful statement about a nun who comes into a room and there are three people and they're all kind of trying to tell each other what to do. And she claps her hands and says, ah, the economy of God, where three people are gathered together. Every one of them is trying to change the other. <laughs> and where eight billion people are gathered together, we have an even greater mess. So we can't work on that level. And if we try to work on that level, um, chaos ensues. So Sri Yukteswar had a, this is, I, I have to thank uh, Om Prakash and Prem Shanti, who every year uh, for us, for many people, do a little uh, day of the week calendar with quotes from the autobiography. And so every day, Davy and I and many, many others get just a bite-sized um, teaching from the autobiography, kind of an autobiography crib sheet. And in many ways, it's better than the whole autobiography because you read things and you're moving on to the next paragraph before you've even chewed and digested the paragraph that you just uh, were reading. So, bite-sized, here's Sri Yukteswar. All creation is governed by law, Sri Yukteswar concluded. The ones which manifest in the outer universe, discoverable by scientists, are called natural laws. But there are subtler laws, ruling the realms of consciousness, which can on be known only through the inner science of yoga. The hidden spiritual planes also have their natural and lawful principles of operation. It is not the physical scientist but the fully self-realized master who comprehends the true nature of matter. Thus Christ was able to restore the servant's ear after it had been severed by one of the disciples. So the great masters are the ones able to um, work with subtle laws, and with those subtle laws, they're able to uplift the world around them to change. But they make the sacrifice of coming into this world filled with discontent and pain and suffering, which they no longer experience because only the ego experiences that. The great masters are beyond the ego, so they don't experience that. But in order to help all of us, in order to uplift us, they come into this world and bring the teachings, but more importantly, they bring um, not only the techniques and teachings of yoga, but they bring right attitudes, but they bring their magnetism, their example, 
and their love. And if we align with that, then we're pulled along in their trade. So one of the things that it's important in these teachings is to realize that what we're really working with is the soul. As I said, the ego, I've described that, but the soul is that image of God that, that the way uh, Lahiri Mahashaya described it was God is pure consciousness, pure joy, pure consciousness, pure awareness. And that's everlasting without, one might say, without change, but master, it's in Sanskrit, Satchitananda, existence, consciousness, joy. But master changed Ananda, joy, to ever new, ever expanding joy, because he didn't want the thought that in God's consciousness, it was all just kind of stable and blah. It was always new, always expanding joy. From that, a tiny part of that pure consciousness, Lahiri said 1%, um, God takes 1%, and with that 1%, puts it into motion of duality, and with that duality is able to create all the universe, the manifested universe, all of these three levels, because even thought has some duality involved in it. But so the soul is that pure little spark of God that is manifested, um, one might say is the prim primeval source of consciousness that separates. But it's it, the soul, our soul, each of us ha is a little spark of God. That is pure in its consciousness. And that incarnates again and again and again, all the way back to uh, beginning with a diamond, uh, which Master said he was, remembered his incarnation back to the mineral world. He was a diamond, and maybe we were diamonds, or maybe we were lumps of coal waiting to become diamonds, or little pieces of gold. Who knows what we were at that level? What we are working with now is that long, long reincarnational journey back to our unity with God. And so when we uplift ourselves or work to uplift ourselves, that's what we're doing. We're trying to bring the ego nature into alignment with the soul nature. When um, Krishna begins the Gita, the, the wonderful, wonderful scripture, the Gita begins by, the, it's a clash between two great armies, which represent the downward pulling forces that create um, chaos and unhappiness in the world, and the upward spiritual forces that create alignment with God, upliftment, and ultimately happiness and reunion with God. So on the eve of that battle, Arjuna, who's the chief warrior for the uplifting uh, Pandavas, asked Krishna to bring him before, in, in between these two great armies. And, it's the, and that's where the Bhagavad Gita, the great 
great scripture begins. And Arjuna is confused because he's still in his ego nature. And he gets confused and he gets discouraged and he decides that he can't fight this battle because he's going to be killing his relatives and uh, friends and those who he grew up with and he gives up. And then Krishna begins. And Krishna begins by telling Arjuna, you're not the body, nor are these other warriors. You are the soul, and the soul cannot be cut by a sword, cannot be burned by fire, cannot be drowned by water. The soul is eternal, and what we're really working toward in this battle is, the, um, is getting over the delusion that makes us think that we're something else. And thus he begins the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, so he, he then teaches basically Arjuna, but all the rest of us, the methods up, up, of uplifting our consciousness so that we realize who we actually are. We're that spark of God and ultimately God itself. There's a fun story that illustrates the difference between changing outer circumstances and, and consciousness. And it's Krishna and Arjuna. So they're walking along together one day, and they see this beggar in the road. And the poor man is gaunt. He's obviously not eaten, and um, his clothes are just rags and dirty. And Arjuna has great compassion for him. And, and so he takes his purse, and he gives it to this beggar. And the beggar, of course, is very happy. And Krishna just observes this. And Krishna and Arjuna move on. And then the next day, they're walking along the same road, and they see this beggar again. And Arjuna says, what, what are you doing here? I, yesterday, I gave you a purse filled with gold coins. Why are you here begging again? And the beggar said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. But you see, when I had that bag of gold coins, apparently there was a thief that watched while you gave me that. And after you left, the thief came and robbed me of it. And I was left with nothing again. So here I am. And Arjuna, feeling sad for this poor fellow, took off a big ruby ring that he was wearing and gave that to the man. And they, Arjuna and Krishna walked on. And the next day, they're walking. And lo and behold, <laughs> here's the beggar again. And Arjuna says, I don't understand. I, I gave you a, a very valuable ring yesterday. Why are you here? <clears throat> and, uh, excuse me. The beggar said, well, I have a sad story. You see, I live across the river. And so as I was going home, I was so happy, I took the ring to show the other passengers of the boat. And just then, a wave hit the boat, and the ring fell out of my hand and sank into the river. Now I'm left with nothing again. Well, Arjuna didn't know what to do, but Krishna did. Krishna represents always the Lord, the God's consciousness. And so Krishna took from his purse a pice 
Now, a pice is the tiniest piece of monetary value. Maybe in today's term, they don't even use pices anymore. It's, it wouldn't be worth the paper it's printed on, literally. But, you know, a tiny, tiny little coin and gave it to the man. And then Krishna and Arjuna walked on and Arjuna turns to Krishna and says, what good is that going to do him? And so Arjuna, Krishna said, just come, watch, you'll see. And so the beggar takes this and he goes kind of discouraged and he goes to um, get in the boat and at the place where the boat is, the landing, there are also people selling fish, fishmongers. And there's a fish for sale for a pice. And so the man decides that he'll buy a fish and it's still alive. And so he decides, well, I think, I think I'm just going to release it back into the water, give it its life. And as he does so, he sees something glint inside the mouth of the fish. And sure enough, it's the ring that had fallen into the water. The fish had it. And so he gets the ring and he shouts out, look what I found. And in the crowd is the thief <laughs> and thinks that he's been discovered. And he says, please, sir, please, sir, here's your bag of coins back. I'm sorry, please don't denounce me to the police. And so now the man has the ring and the coins which were given to him. But why does he have it? Because he was no longer thinking of himself. See, it's the upliftment of consciousness that brings us treasure. It is not the change of circumstance. If he'd taken those gold coins, yes, his life might have changed a little bit, but so what? His consciousness wouldn't. He would still be born in the next life with the same kind of consciousness that, that he was in this life, returning to the same circumstances. So it's always the soul returns again and again and again, working to learn the lessons that are always involved with upliftment of consciousness until ultimately we come back to the realization of who and what we are. Now, during the rest of the week, we're going to be giving classes on the elements of uplifting consciousness. And so that's what we're after. Another aspect of this is that according to these three levels, uh, physical plane, astral plane, and causal plane, each one of them is like a different level of consciousness. The great masters talk about this world being like a dream. And so we take things so seriously here. Who's we that takes it so seriously? Who suffers? Who's the only thing that can suffer? The ego. The ego takes things so seriously and the masters say, well, life, this life is just a dream. Try to act properly, try to enjoy it. Master said, all life is for our education 
and entertainment, but how few are either educated or entertained because we angst about things all the time. If we can see that it's a dream, then that kind of one level back of not being so attached, not being so uh, involved, brings great relief and great uh, upliftment and freedom of consciousness. But it's not easy to see that life is a dream because when you're caught in the dream, the dream is your whole world. And so it's hard to project outside of that. Yes, there's another world because in our, in our normal dream consciousness, we haven't experienced that yet. And so we take this for real. And when we do, we suffer. So one time, Master had a great experience. He, had, he was sitting meditating, and all of a sudden, his consciousness was transported into the body of a soldier who was on a beach and it had just been shot and was dying, and he felt himself die and going through the agony of death. And then all of a sudden, he was transported back to his uh, body, sitting on the bed, meditating. And with great relief, he thought, oh, that was a strange experience. When what happens, he was transported back to the body of the soldier again. And it wasn't just imaginary, he was actually in that body and, and suffering. And then he came back and he kind of cried out, Lord, who am I? Am I, am I Arjuna or Yogananda sitting here meditating? Or am I the soldier on the beach? And the answer came, you are light. What does life or death have to do with light? And see, so we're, we're this eternal being, but as long as we're dreaming in this level of reality, then we can't see that. So is this, is this world unreal? No, you can't say that. The dream is real. The dream people are real. The dream experiences, the time and place, they're all real, but only at the level of the dream. When we wake up, we see, oh, well, that was interesting, but it, it was just a dream. Well, the same is going to happen. When we wake up, even after death and go to the astral world, which is, kind of coming from subconscious to superconscious, uh, we'll see that this world of, of what we thought was real was only temporarily real. And so one question that comes up is, why don't the masters, knowing that we suffer, why don't they come in? If, they're, if they've come into this world, uh, this this mud puddle, one might say, why don't they clean it up for us? Why don't they fix the world? Well, the masters, Swami said, they're not too interested in fixing up our mud puddle. Their interest is in getting us out of that mud puddle so that we don't suffer. I had a dream a couple of nights ago, this would be fun for two people in the room, 
I had a dream that I was with Jaya and Aditya, and we were in a big room that was apparently either in a hotel or a, a house. Anyway, there was a sense that this was kind of my place, but not really my place. And we were playing pool. <laughs> now, I shouldn't admit this, but a lot of hours in my misspent youth were playing pool. Anyway, we were playing pool and having a good time. But then Jaya noticed, with kind of disgust, that the floor was all dirty and there was, there was trash and, and, and just stuff on the floor. And I felt kind of embarrassed. I'm not quite sure because I didn't really own this place, but, and I didn't make the mess, but it was messy and I felt a sense of embarrassment. And so I was down on my knees and I was cleaning up some spilled milk and uh, lunch potatoes that had been dumped there. <laughs> and I was busy cleaning that up and that was kind of the end of the dream, which, you know, that's not a very uplifting dream, let's, <clears throat> let's face it. Pure subconscious. I mean, you could try to delve down and come up with some symbols, but I'm not going there. The point <clears throat> I want to make, <clears throat> excuse me, is after I woke up, I had no desire to go back into that dream and clean up the mess. <laughs> And so the masters are awake. They don't want to go clean up the dream mess. They want to get us out of that dream. And so maybe if I want to not have a mess in my dream, I should think about what I'm going to eat before I go to bed or something of that nature. But the point being is that as we awaken from this dream world, we don't really want to go back and change the dream as a dream, but we want to uplift the people who are dreaming nightmares, wake them up a little bit so that they aren't suffering while they're dreaming. And as long as there are people who really want to get out of being in the dream state, then the masters want to help them uplift their consciousness so that they no longer have to return to the, to the dream, at least at the level of the, of the physical plane, which is the lowest and worst of all the planes. Uh, I hope I'm not stealing a story from Davy because she told me it originally, but if I am, Om Swaha. <laughs> So this was told to her by our dear friend, uh, Nayaswami um, uh, Kirtani, who now lives in, in Assisi, helps head the center. In the early days of Ananda, we had big, big compost piles because we were trying to enrich the soil, which is red clay. And compost piles are kind of garbage, plus uh, like hay and, um, green matter, and you put a particular kind of bacteria inoculant in, and, 
and over a period of time, it, it uh, turns to beautiful additive for the soil. But part of the job was you have to turn it over because it has to, the stuff in the middle has to get to the outside for the air. So Kirtani was doing this, and she came on a chunk of un, undigested garbage, and in that were these maggots, fly maggots, and they were all crawling around in this goopy trash. And she thought, ooh, how can you live that way? Ooh. She finished her job. Then she was walking home. It was a beautiful day, nice day like this, uh, toward evening, beautiful clouds, nice little breeze blowing. And she heard a voice say, ooh, how can you live like that? <laughs> and she realized that we're not very far beyond those maggots. <laughs> this world that we're inhabiting, there are much better realms ahead. So, what can change? Only our consciousness. We can't really change the things outside of ourselves, but we can change our consciousness. So, how do we do that? What are the tools of change, one might ask. The, how, how, do we, how do we actually uplift consciousness? Well, the first thing is that we have to accept that the responsibility for changing our consciousness lies with us. If we think that something outside of ourself is going to do that work for us, we aren't going to be able to get very far because that's not the way God's laws work. See, God is inside of us, and he doesn't want God outside of us, which is everything other than our spark of, of individuality. It's the job of each spark of individuality to help uplift itself. And so first we have to take responsibility, but then we have to deeply, deeply accept the fact that we can make changes. Because if we don't accept that, if we feel passive in this whole process, then we're just the circumstances of whatever's flowing. We're the circumstances of our karma. And wherever we're put, be that slop in the middle of a hay mound or on, on the steps of a beautiful building, that's where we stay. But, but if we really accept that we can control our consciousness, we can choose to be happy, we can choose to make changes, then that's the first step. And we have to be motivated in order to undertake that. The second step is that we then need to understand from inside what it is we want. So we need kind of a clarity clarification, clarity of our aspirations. What is it that we really want? And when we can clarify what it is we want, for many of us, that's um, spiritual enlightenment. But it may not be for everyone. It may be that in this life, they, their aspiration is freedom from fear, 
or freedom, freedom from something that's pulling them down. But whatever that aspiration is, or aspirations, then we need to understand that it's up to us to work toward that and to do so incrementally. You can't just automatically change everything. One time, uh, Yogananda said to a group of disciples, if you really said you're free, you'd be free. And one of the disciples said, well, we can't be free just by saying we are free. Art, can we, Master? And Master said, well, you've answered your own question. See, we have to deeply understand that our consciousness absolutely determines everything. And so when we accept that, then we have to incrementally move toward the upliftment of consciousness until it's at least directionally aligned toward what our aspiration is. Then we have three great things that will help us. The most important, if you come to this point, is attunement with the consciousness of the guru. Because the guru not only will give you the appropriate teachings, but more importantly, he will give you magnetism and love that you need in order to flourish in this process. And then, we, if we take on a guru, which most of us have with Yogananda, then he will give us the appropriate teachings, which we can call our sadhana. Then the next thing is we have to do what we're given to do. Again, it's our responsibility to, to do that. So meditate, basically, Master said his path was a combination of meditation and service. And he outlined it, and I won't talk about it because much of the rest of the week, we're going to be talking about these elements. But what he's given us to do, the pathway that he has let, laid out for us, we need then to take our commitment, our willingness, our thoughts, our actions, and we need to move along that pathway. Everything that we do that moves us along the pathway to freedom can be thought of as our sadhana. Sadhana is not just the hour that you spend in meditation each morning. It's everything, everything that you do in order to move toward, toward the goal of your, of your life, ultimately the goal of existence, which is to return to the consciousness of who we really are, a spark of God. And then finally, <clears throat> the last element that really helps us is to be gathered together with others doing the same thing. In India, they call it satsang. Um, sangha is a gathering, sat, truth, so a gathering of truth seekers. And the more, because we're highly, highly influenced by the consciousness, the examples, the energies, the magnetism of people around us. So the more time you can spend in association with truth seekers or in association with the writings of 
masters, the writings of, I mean, we, we just learned, for instance, that in a little while we're going to end up with about 6,000 talks, files of talks of Swamiji. So you could spend the rest of your life in company with Swamiji, uh, just listening to his talks. So, but you're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. But we're not going to listen to 6,000, but we could listen to one or two a week, or we could put one of those talks on when we're driving. See, there are many ways to be in the company of truth seekers. And the more we are, the more that magnetism, because wherever we put our consciousness, that is going to grow and grow and grow. So we can choose to put our consciousness in alignment with God, the gurus, the great teachers, and that will help us move, uplift our consciousness, and move toward freedom. And if we do that, we will also do our part in uplifting the world. I'll just end with this. So the, the consciousness of a person seeking light becomes light, and it becomes a source of light for others. There was a Swami and uh, two other people, um, and I went on a around-the-world trip. Nalini is one of them, and she's probably watching from home. Um, we went on a around-the-world trip. We started by um, stopping at the ashram of uh, Subramunya, who had an ashram in Hawaii. And we had a beautiful time with him. And as we were leaving, he said something beautiful that we can keep in mind. He said, you have brought your light to this ashram, and we have joined our light with it. Now, you're going to travel around the world. Every place you'd stop, bring your light and gather the light of the people that you meet in that place. And as you travel around, weave strings of light around the world. And as you do that, the world itself will move toward enlightenment. So as we uplift ourselves, we become one little bulb on that string of light. And as we weave that around the world, it will uplift and change the world toward what will be a, a brighter and more prosperous and beautiful future. God bless you. I just hope I didn't steal any of her stories. We'll talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> no, you didn't. You didn't. So let me say again, it is so delightful to see so many of you here. We have friends visiting from India, from all over America, from Los Angeles, from all of our, from England, from uh, all of our many, many centers and communities throughout America, and from 
Argentina, yeah. <laughs> and we have someone is simultaneously translating in Spanish right now. But it's, it's just a joy. And we even have people here who live downstairs from us. So welcome. <laughs> so what I'd like to focus on now is talking about what is our true potential and why is this important in changing the world? Autobiography of a yogi is a force of light in this world. It's changed the lives of countless people, numbers uncounted, when we travel around meet people in many different countries and places, so often they say, I read Autobiography of a Yogi 10 years ago, 30 years ago, two weeks ago, and it just changed my life. But the first, the frontispiece of Autobiography, when you first open it, Master has a quote from the Bible, from John, and it says, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So meaning, unless you see miracles, you won't believe. You need that because we're too skeptical about the divine presence in this world. And so the autobiography is filled from, you can hardly turn a page without finding a miracle starting early on with Lahiri Mahashaya manifesting in a cornfield or wheat field to Master's father, telling him to let his uh, employee come to Benares to see him, to the Tiger Swami. This, I wish we had a picture of him, don't you? Just this powerful spiritual, physical being who could wrestle tigers and break their will and make them into little pussycats. But yes, that was a miracle. But as we know the chapter, that was nothing compared to wrestling the tigers of ignorance and sense attachment. To the miracle of Giribala, the woman saint, who never ate, just lived from prana, lived from prana. And then finally, the beautiful chapter when an accountant in the British Civil Service, his name was, I think, Lahiri, is somehow transferred up to a remote part of northern India, the Almora district. And he's, he doesn't have much to do, so he's this accountant, householder with several children, good man, but fairly ordinary, so it seems wandering in the foothills of the Himalayas, hears someone calling his name, goes up, follows the voice, and there is a radiant saint standing there. Of course, we know it's Babaji. And, Lahiri, and Babaji says, don't you remember me? How often we don't hear that voice, but Master is saying to each of his disciples, don't you remember me? And we forget. But then Babaji touches Lahiri, you are my guru. 
And he said, Lahiri, here's your little meditation mat. Here's your, where you sat in sadhana. And it all comes flooding back. And from then Babaji manifests the golden palace, but initiates him into Kriya. And then fortunately for us, sends him back into the world to spread the message of Kriya Yoga to the world. That hadn't happened we wouldn't be here. And so miracle after miracle, but what's the point? What's the point of all these miracles? That's interesting, that's fun. Oh, she doesn't eat, he wrestles tigers. But the point is to show us our own potential. All of these things that, Christ said, all the things that I do, you too can do. And that's the point of all the miracles, not to just say, wow, but to say, that is the human potential. That is what I can achieve as well. And we need to understand that that divine potential is in us. And that's why Master calls us, as Jyotish was saying, not to clean up the mess, but to awaken us that's who I am. I'm not my problems. I'm not my mistakes. I am that divine reality. I am a spark of God. And Master tells us also that human beings are unique creations of all of God's creation, of all the animal kingdom. Darwin didn't get it right. It isn't just, okay, there's this little life form and that life form and this and this, and finally we evolve into human beings. No, Master said that isn't what happens, that mankind is a unique creation endowed with a particular highly evolved nervous system and astral centers, chakras, we'll be talking about that in depth tomorrow, that enable us to experience the flood of God's consciousness. We can't do it from where we are now. We have to evolve. We have the potential. Don't misunderstand. But bit by bit, one time Master's disciple, Dr. Lewis, very sincere, very evolved soul, pleaded with Master, can, will you give me samadhi? Will you give me samadhi? And Master turned and looked at him and said, could you take it if I gave it to you? No, sir, no, sir, no, sir. Because his nervous system wasn't refined yet, but we have that potential. And you know, scientists tell us we use one-tenth of our brain capacity. What are we doing with the other 90%? Did you ever think about that? What's it doing? It's just spaced out. But the enlightened masters use the full capacity, and that's what they're trying to show us. There's that wonderful story from the Bible that Swami cited uh, showing Christ's sense of humor. And so he, Christ had been preaching, and then uh, a mob gathered around him with stones, and they were going to stone him. And this is where Swami liked the humor. Christ looks at this angry mob, you know, mob consciousness about to stone him. And Christ says very calmly, I have done many good things for you. For which of these good things have you come to stone me? 
And they said, no, it's not for the good things. It's because you blaspheme. You say that you are the son of God. And Christ very calmly answers, don't your scriptures say you too are gods? And they had to acknowledge that was true. That's what the scriptures say. And one by one, they dropped their stones and dispersed. So over and over, the scriptures are telling us we are sons of God. We have that potential. And to settle for anything less is to say, okay, that 90% of my brain, that's fine. Let it, let it just be checked out. No, we need to fulfill our divine purpose that for which we incarnated, to, to which Master drew us to this path. And none of you, I wish we could realize that the fact that we kneel at Master's feet, it's the greatest blessing we can imagine in this lifetime, and it's not random. You have earned it in the past by your own effort. And now we come, and as the world intensifies in its confusion, it's the time for us to up the ante. I will be a force of good. I will be a force of light. Maybe I can't uplift the world, but I will do everything I can to uplift myself. And Master also said, and this is wonderful to think, that human beings having this unique capacity to experience in fullness the energy of God, he said human beings are actually a higher order than the angels. Because the angels, when they, in, in Eastern thought, it would be the devas. They are of a high order, but they can't become one with God. Angels will do their goodness in the world, but they're always not, they're on a different level. Whereas we as human beings, so much more than working and doing a job and cooking meals and all the things we do, we have the capacity for full realization of God's presence within us. Remember that when you get discouraged. Remember that when you doubt yourself. That's who you are. But what holds us back? Why don't we think we can do it? Well, you know, I recently read, it's this wonderful book from the Yogananda series, Wisdom, How to Awaken Your True Potential. And again, this whole series was created by a humble, anonymous devotee whose name does not appear on this book, Nayaswami Anandi. She gave us all these books, spent months and months compiling them all. So in this book, Master tells, gives a beautiful explanation of a parable that Christ taught. You know, so much of the Bible that we read is totally obscure. So much of all the scriptures we read are totally obscure. The, you know, it was beautiful. We were recently with some friends in Temecula uh, outside of LA. And my brother, who's sort of getting on the path, he's older than I am, 
he, a few months ago, he said, you know, I've read the Bhagavad Gita three times, and I just don't understand it. And Jyotish, this was several months ago, said, ah, we have just the book for you. And he gave him master's interpretations of the Gita. And then my brother came to visit us with our friends in Temecula, and he said, I'm halfway through the book, and I'm finally understanding the Gita. Well, the same is true for the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. The same is true for the Bible. You can read these stories, but you don't understand them until you have an enlightened soul who explains them. So in this book, there is a story that helps us understand what, what holds us back from our full potential. And that's the parable of the wheat and the tares that Christ told. Tares, we've heard that a lot. Who knows what it means? I didn't know. It means weeds, simply weeds. So the parable of the wheat and the weeds. So in this parable that Christ tells in the Bible, it's in Matthew, there is a, a man who has large farms, and he sows a field of wheat. But in the night, his enemy comes and sows weeds, tarries, in his field, unbeknownst to anyone, and then slips away. And then the season passes, and the man's servants come, and they say, Master, Master, the wheat is coming up, but did you plant weeds in with your wheat? And the master said, no, that was my enemy who did that. I did not plant them. Master, should we tear up the field? What should we do? He said, no, let it be. Let it come to harvest. And when it comes to harvest, the reapers will come, and they will separate the weeds from the wheat. And so it comes to pass. And that's the end of the parable. Well, what in the world does that mean? Master has the explanation. The man who sows the field is the devotee who is making spiritual effort, who is trying. But then, while he is sleeping, the subconscious state, his old habits of materialism, sense attachment, all of these things start also arising. That's the enemy planting the weeds in his garden. And then the servants come and said, oh, the weeds are growing, the weeds are growing, should we cut it all down? And the, man, the, man, the devotee said, no. Let's not focus on the weeds. Let them all grow. Focus on the wheat. Focus on your good spiritual qualities. And when we reap the harvest, when the reaper, which is our superconscious mind, when that comes to reap the field, they'll know how to separate the weeds from the wheat. We don't need to worry about it. And so the explanation is the weeds are our self-doubt, our guilt, our sense of hopelessness that we can never find God, all of these things. But if we don't focus on those things, this is Master's message is one of, unlimited possibilities and hope for our spiritual liberation. And what he's saying is, our own, if we keep developing spiritually, our own superconscious mind will change those grooves in the brain that make us doubt our own capabilities. So that's, we need to understand, that's what holds us back. Those 
unconscious tendencies, those doubts. But if we, Sri Teshwar says so beautifully, the lives of all people are dark with many shames. All things in future will improve if we are making the right spiritual effort now. So forget the past. Forget the mistakes you made. Which one of us in this room has not done things that we regret? Forget about it. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> That's kind of an in-joke <laughs> with our friend Narayan. I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> anyway, don't dwell on those things. But then what helps us move forward? What are those qualities? Well, Jyotish has spoken of many of them. But concentration and willpower on what we're trying to accomplish, it takes, the spiritual path is not for lazy people. And you won't change your consciousness passively. It has to be a day-to-day -day effort that you choose to say what you want to say to someone, to think a certain way, and when those thoughts of, oh, well, I can hedge my bet, I can you know, walk the middle ground. There is no middle ground on the spiritual path. That's why they say the path that God is a razor's edge. You walk that line, and you give it everything you've got, because that's how we transform our consciousness. But we have been given the grace of the guru. And that will help us tremendously. You know, um, that remember in autobiography, again referring, Master had been going here and there, going to the Himalayas from young age, trying to find uh, this, you know, uh, someone who would give him enlightenment. Finally, he finds his guru, Sri Teshwarji. He's in his ashram. Still, there's that drive. No, I've got to go somewhere to find it. And he tells his guru, and you know, Master was enlightened. I think the whole drama of that story was for our benefit, just to say, get it from your guru. You're not going to find it anywhere else. But he goes off and, um, to that, this, um, where he goes up into the Malias, and he meets um, Ram Gopal and Muslim Dar, and has an incredible experience. And then he says, will you give me an experience of God? He said, I can't do that. That's for your guru to do. So he comes back humbly to Sri Teshwar's ashram. And a few days after, he's trying to meditate. As we all know the story, Sri Teshwar calls him down, taps him on the chest. He experiences the fullness of God within and without through the grace of the guru. So that's what we cling to. We, cl we do our best, but through meditation, concentration, willpower, we begin to awaken and we realize that ultimately that's why the gurus come, not just you know to put on a big show or all the things that happen on an outward level, but they come to liberate you and me. No other purpose, no other purpose, no other agenda, 
just that. And so we need to claim our birthright. Master used that phrase a lot. We need to raise our hand and say, I want this. Here I am. I'm tired of sitting on the sidelines. I want this now. And I want to read something um, from, again, Awaken to Superconsciousness. When, before I do that, one other point. Another essential point, and there will be a class on this later in the week, in our achieving our true potential, is right living. It's not enough just to meditate. Even the grace of the guru isn't enough. We need to, as uh, Yanamata said, our religion is tested in the cold light of day. And we need to live the teachings in the cold light of day when someone cuts in front of you on the freeway or when you realize that your coworker is undermining your efforts. You need to, you need to realize that. And so living rightly. And the yamas and the niyamas, change yourself, change the world, uplift yourself, uplift the world. It's Patanjali talks about this, the principles of yama and niyama. To use a few, uh, nonviolence. Begin how Gandhi was able to free uh, India from British rule. But, but Patanjali says the perfection of nonviolence is that you change the world around you. And there's wild animals or whatever it might be just become totally tame around you telling the truth, non-lying. If we only speak the truth and how easy it is to define truth according to our own uh, interests in the moment, but by non-lying, whatever we speak is manifest. Non-stealing, whatever not taking for ourselves, whatever we want is given to us. So even in the esoteric teachings of Patanjali, we're being shown if we work on these things, if we live them, if we practice them, it has a tremendous impact in the world around us. And I want to read this passage. If you've been taking notes, put everything down now. And just listen. Listen to Master's words. This is, it's in the first page 11 of how to realize your full potential. Close your eyes and feel that Master is giving these words, speaking these words to you. He calls it <clears throat> a sacred invitation. Come out of the closed chamber of limitation. Breathe in the fresh air of vital thoughts. Exhale poisonous thoughts of discouragement, discontentment, or hopelessness. Never suggest to your mind human limitations of sickness, old age, or death, but constantly remind yourself, I am infinite, which has become the body. Take long mental walks on the path of self-confidence. Exercise with instruments of judgment, introspection, an initiative. Feast unstintingly on creative thinking within yourself and others. Above all, 
Cultivate the habit of meditation. This is the inner switch you turn on to connect yourself with the infinite. Hold on to the after effects of meditation by your attention. You will find then that you are a reservoir of power in body, mind, and soul. By constantly holding in mind the peaceful after effects of meditation, by feeling immortality in the body, and by feeling the ocean of God's bliss beneath the changeable waves of experience, the soul can find perpetual rejuvenation. You all are gods if you only knew it. You must look within. Behind the wave of your consciousness is the sea of God's presence. Claim your divine birthright. Awake, and you shall behold the glory of God. So, to close, how does it work? We've talked of many things. When we uplift our consciousness, what is the mechanism that uplifts the world around us? Sri Teshwar says in Autobiography of a Yogi, the greater the realization of a person, the more influence he has on the world around him, and the less he is affected by the waves of Maya. So the more we work on our own upliftment, the more we have the power to make changes in the world around us. Not with ego, not I am a yogi and I have these powers, no. Just as in Autobiography when uh, Kable Ananda tells Master how when he was with Lahiri, there was a young disciple who was blind. And Kable Ananda, felt sorry for him, and he said, go ask Lahiri to cure you of your blindness. And at first, the young boy is reluctant, but then he goes, Master, I've been blind since birth. Can you cure me of this? And Lahiri said, oh, Ramu, who put you up to this? I have no power to cure you of your blindness. And he said, no, Master, but the divine within you has that power. Oh. If that's what you mean, of course. And he touches him, and he, and, but he's not healed in that moment. He says, for a, a week, constantly hold your mind at the spiritual eye and chant the name Ram, Ram, Ram. After a week, his eyes, for the first time, beheld the glory of the sun. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because Lahiri, he said, I can't do it, but the God within me can do it. But he, the God within him could have healed him in that moment. But he wanted to have Ramu also make the effort. You need to put out that effort. And so it's that beautiful dance, the God within us, not us, not our ego, with the grace of Guru acting in alignment with that wisdom, with that truth, can change and uplift the world around us. And Master often, often said to his disciples, 
Swami told us this often. To as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. What does it mean to receive him? To open your heart, to open your mind, to open your life and say, I am yours. I receive you with the fullness of my being, with the fullness of my capacity. And when we do that, when we become aware that we are children of God, that he dwells within us, then we realize our full potential. And when that happens, then our ability to change and uplift the world is beyond imagination of expectancy. So my friends, let us all reach for that height and let us all help each other along the way.